Amen. Well, in about a week, uh, I'm turning 32, which uh, I'm very excited about. Uh, actually, no, I'm not very excited about it at all. Uh, as, uh, as the 30s roll on, I'm starting to get to that point where no longer am I excited as each uh, year goes past and I get a little bit older. Uh, I may be potentially going to be a little wiser uh, in a week on Monday, but uh, that's about it. And uh, 32 uh, is, is very similar to the years that have gone before it. I have somehow managed to avoid a full-on birthday party since I was 10, uh, which I'm very proud of. Having said that, though, I have managed never to work on my birthday in 32 years. That will all come crashing down next Monday, which is very sad. But apart from that, I, I have no idea what Liz has planned uh, for my 32nd birthday. I'm tipping not a great deal because I make such a fuss about not wanting a fuss that she uh, grants me my request each year. Now, uh, as I was thinking about uh, this sermon of Ezekiel chapter 1 this week, I was thinking back to my 30th birthday uh, because we have here a man on his 30th birthday as this great book opens for us. And I remember my 30th birthday. While I've never uh, had a party since I was 10, on my 30th birthday I was sitting uh, on the north coast uh, just above Sydney, uh, a beach called Avoca Beach, on a house with this massive deck uh, with great friends having a barbecue as, as we celebrated together. Now, uh, it was a great day and I was uh, somewhat surprised uh, to see my friends there. Liz had organised this uh, on my behalf, but uh, it is nothing compared to the surprise that greets Ezekiel on his 30th birthday. I'm not sure if you've ever had a surprise birthday party, but I'm tipping uh, you haven't had one like this. And that's what we're going to see tonight as we open this book. So if you don't have it open, it's worth getting it open now. Ezekiel chapter 1. We begin a new series on one of the, uh, the larger books in the Bible, some 48 chapters Ezekiel has. And uh, Ezekiel brings us to a point uh, in the life of God's people, Israel, which is a point of real crisis. As this book opens, we are being told of the closing days of the little nation of Judah. Earlier on in the, in the late 8th century, the once great Israel had been all but destroyed by the might of the Assyrians, all that remained of what was once the great nation of Israel, God's people in God's land, was this little nation to the south, the nation of Judah. But even they eventually were taken over. In 597 BC we are told that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, swept across the region from the east. He laid siege to Judah's capital city, Jerusalem, And within days, Judah's king Jehoiachin had no choice but to surrender. The city was plundered, God's great city. And the elite of Judah, the elite of Jerusalem were ripped out and taken off to exile in Babylon. Well, that's where our book opens, in the closing days of this once great nation. Some five years into this first exile into Babylon, The king had been taken along with uh, the the rich, the powerful and a man 25 years old named Ezekiel. Now five years into exile uh, by the banks of the Kibar River he is celebrating his 30th birthday. From uh, these first three verses it seems that Ezekiel had been training to be a priest and uh, it was typical that priests came into the full use of their duties as priests when they were 30. As soon as they turned 30, they became fully-fledged 
increased. Well, that's what Ezekiel was going to do if he was still in Judah. But now as he sits by the banks of the Kibar River in Babylon, we have this remarkable surprise birthday party. He is given an amazing ministry by God that we will see in the coming weeks. He is asked to speak to a people in a situation in which he himself finds himself in. He is among the exiles, but not as some sort of distant observer, way off, unaffected by what they're dealing with. He is with them. Their reality is his reality. And it's a desperate one. They're in exile. Homeless. Now most of us will know nothing of what that feels like to be homeless. We might have seen it in close quarters in, in the last year in Sheffield as the floods came and we saw some homeless for days, some even for weeks, some only now moving towards returning to their homes. But the situation Ezekiel and his fellow exiles are in is, is far more desperate than that. It's not simply a, a case of they're finding themselves in uncomfortable locations, having to endure it for a while, knowing that soon they'll be heading back home. Now their whole world has caved in. To be in exile, you see, is not simply to be homeless. It's, it's rather knowing that you have a home, knowing exactly where it is, but knowing that your enemies have taken it over, that you have been uprooted and there is no way back. And what do you do when that's your reality, as it was for Judah? Well, Psalm 137, speaking of these times, says the people of Judah sat by the banks of that river weeping. And why not? Or as Lamentations 5 puts it, they said our joy is gone. Our dancing has turned to mourning. And what makes the tears they cried by the banks of that river so desperate is that Judah isn't just mourning some sort of cruel twist of fate, some unfortunate chain of events that has landed them in Babylon. No, Judah's disastrous exile is a direct consequence of their own sin their abject unfaithfulness to the God who had so richly blessed them with the land they had and so richly blessed them with his mighty presence in that land. The reality for Judah is that their God has become their enemy and now they're feeling the full weight of his wrath. If you like, it's the polar opposite of Romans 8.31 where Paul rejoices, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, Judah's reality is very different. If God is against us, who can be for us? Now, as we begin to explore what Ezekiel is called to say to such a people, it's vitally important right at the start of this series that we make a connection if we are to grasp the huge import this prophecy has for us sitting here tonight. You see, if we're clear about the story that the whole Bible tells, then we'll recognise in the story of the exile of Israel the story of all humanity, the story of the fall from Eden of the human race. Israel's experience is the whole of humanity's experience. All throughout the Bible, the connection between what Israel is going through at a time like this in exile and what we as a world are going through circa 2008 is made again and again. For example, uh, in the first few chapters of Romans, Romans 1-3, to Paul argues that the wrath of God the same wrath that is being now poured out on the Israelites in exile has been poured out on all of humanity. 
And in these first three chapters he lists example after example of the sin of humanity, citing examples from Israel's own sin, Israel's own unfaithfulness. Finally, in uh, chapter 3, verse 19, he makes a direct connection between Israel and the whole of the human race. This is what he says. Romans 3.19, he says, Now we know that the law, in other words, the Old Testament says what it says to those under the law, Israel. But we know this, says Paul, so that every mouth may be silenced because the whole world is accountable to God. You see, from the perspective of, of the New Testament, the situation in which Ezekiel's word was to be spoken in these following chapters was the very same situation Jesus proclaimed the gospel in, the very same situation in which we proclaim the gospel today. If God is against us, who can be for us is the question for our world too. And if we don't join the dots right at the start of this series between the reality for Israel in 597 BC and the reality for our world in 2008, then what we're going to do is we're going to fall into the same delusion that the modern world operates under. A delusion where we as a world have lost all sense of the fact that we are, in fact, in exile. Far from the place where we should be as a world. And having lost all sense of the fact that we are exiled, we're convinced as a human race that we're on the up and up. That we're full of hope, full of the capacity to overcome any hurdles that might be in our path in the future. But we all know both personally and and in the world at large, it is all too easy, even for those of us who seem to have everything sorted out, to have the sort of the veneer of life stripped away just by a moment. Whether it be the loss of a job, and the lifestyle that went with it, or the loss of health, the loss of a loved one. And sometimes it's not just a moment, is it? It's a slow creep of life that tells us that we are far from home, far from the place where we should be in life. Whether it be quickly or slowly, the scaffolding of our lives can fall down and we're left in the rubble. That's the truth of our world. Our world is in exile. And yet unlike the Israelites by the banks of that river, our world continues to party as if it weren't so, continues to sing songs of triumph, of hope, of overcoming. But the truth is songs like that are in total dissonance to the reality of things. They're totally out of place in this world. I was thinking about that this week and I was reminded of an article uh, a few years ago from a uh, one of those weekend magazines you, you get in papers, we get them in Australia, too, infested in the middle of these huge weekend papers. Well, here was this article about an Anzac Day celebration a few years ago. Uh, every year in, in April, Australia and New Zealand celebrate Anzac Day and many Australians in recent times have taken to going to Gallipoli, uh, the scene of probably the worst military disaster Australia was part of. It's meant to be a, uh, a serious service. It has been for years and years and years. But in recent time, it's become the hotspot uh, for backpackers and tourists each year. And this is what it said of, of uh, a service a couple of years ago. In the concluding moments of last year's Anzac Day dawn service in Gallipoli, the Lieutenant Colonel of the New Zealand Defence Force thanked the participants for attending the celebration. He quickly checked himself, renaming the occasion a commemorance. But in fact, the Army Chief had aptly described the dominant tone of proceedings 
The solemn 45-minute dawn service was but an interlude in an all-night event during which most of the young attendees had enjoyed rock music blasted from two-metre high speakers, drunk abundant contraband alcohol and in general celebrated. It goes on. Alcohol had been prohibited at all times along the Gallipoli Peninsula, not just on Anzac Day, but every day. Australia and New Zealand and Turkey all recognised the area as a cemetery and banned alcohol out of respect for the more than 100,000 soldiers who had died there in World War I. But the empty beer cans and wine bottles strewn around Anzac Cove and along the road leading to Lone Pine Cemetery suggested the ban was not strongly policed. A band of binge drinkers, some appearing to be unconscious throughout the dawn service, were last year approached by officials uh, six hours before sunrise They jokingly prodded at the drunken visitors, everybody please stand up and make room for those waiting to arrive or we'll come and deal with you. Directly before the service began, a band played a song popular with the younger crowd who accepted the invitation to sing along. Before launching into a cover of U2's Beautiful Day, the lead singer remarked that the song wasn't perhaps appropriate, but what the heck. With a cold one in hand and standing astride the graves of the fallen, the 26-year-old Stuart King of Melbourne explained that he and his friends had been in a drinking competition in which each tried to outdrink the other. On adjacent graves, the young Australians drank, stubbed out cigarettes or used headstones as pillows while napping in their sleeping bags. Most of the older attendees ignored their behaviour of the, the 100 or 200 revellers, but some left in disgust after the crowd broke into their third Mexican wave. Anzac Day is a party, they said. Now, I remember reading that and thinking, could you get any less appropriate for the moment? But that is exactly how our world behaves. The Bible wants to call our world back to see the reality of things, to take our key from those sitting at the banks of the key bar. The most appropriate song for the situation we're in as our world is one of lament. And only when you have that clear of view of the reality where the world are in, are we ready to listen to the words of the prophet Ezekiel, ready to listen to the words that God gave him to speak? What is God going to say to those in such a hopeless situation? Would you know what he does? He gives Israel and he gives the world what they most desperately need. What our world needs more than anything else is a vision of the future, a way forward a vision of how things really are and how they will be. And the vision that Ezekiel gets on his 30th birthday, this surprise that he gets, is a vision unlike any you will have ever seen. And it's one that encompasses the whole world. God's word to his exiles is to throw open the doors of heaven and show them reality in its full colour. Let's have a look at this vision together. And as we look at it, I want you to have an image in your head And this image again comes uh, from Sydney. One of of the great moments in any Sydney summer is the big Sydney summer storm. One of those days where you wake up uh, early in the morning and it's already really hot. You know, it's six o'clock in the morning and it's stinking hot already and you know it's only going to get worse. And it's not just that dry heat, it's, it's humid, sticky heat. And throughout the day, hour after hour of baking sun and you're looking for somewhere to sort of get some respite, whether it be the beach or the pool, And then sometime in the late afternoon there's just a hint of a subtly wind. And then ever so gently it builds and builds and builds. 
and clouds start to sweep across the sky and they get heavier and heavier and darker and darker until you're looking up in the late afternoon and suddenly it hits this massive windstorm, thunder, lightning and colossal rain. An amazing sight. Well, that's the sight that Ezekiel sees as he sits by the banks of the Kibar. Have a look at verse 4. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. Now, to be honest, when a storm like that hits in Sydney or really anywhere, people run, don't they, for shelter. But not Ezekiel. He stares right at the centre of this storm and sees a most unusual sight. Have a look at verse 5 onwards, this spectacular sight that he sees right at the heart of this storm. There he sees four cherubim. The problem with uh, cherubim is that if we know what that word means, we've usually got an image of that sort of that cute boyish figures we see in Western art or, or sort of planted on buildings all over the place, but that's not the figure here. These creatures are awesome. And while some of the details are obscured, Ezekiel sees the four of them as if they're standing in some sort of shape of it, like a hollow square, with their human faces pointing outwards, north, south, east and west, and their eagle faces facing each other, and the lion face on the right, the ox on the left, all points of the compass are covered. And this amazing hollow square structure with lightning in the middle of it is racing around all over the place. And it's this movement that gets Ezekiel's attention and he draws his eyes down below to see how they're moving. They have legs but but they're not walking or running and they have wings but they're not flying. And then he sees the means of their movement. You see it there, verse 15? The wheels. Now again, it's difficult to picture how these wheels work. It's It's such a complex picture that's painted for us here. It is literally wheels within wheels. But the main point seems to be that these wheels enable these four creatures to change direction and move anywhere, totally unrestricted, total freedom. And it gets even more spectacular. Have a look at verse 18. Ezekiel focused now on these amazing wheels, watching this thing race around all over the place. He's staring at the wheels. And we're told in verse 18 he focuses on their high and awesome rims. Now it sounds a bit like an episode out of Top Gear. But that is until you read the rest of the verse. The rims were full of eyes. Eyes looking everywhere in all directions at the same time. Total movement. Total vision. But then Ezekiel notices the most important thing yet. Having joined the dots on how these creatures are moving, the wheels, he now sees how these wheels get their energy, where they get their locomotion from. Have a look at verse 19. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of life was in the wheels. Now unfortunately in verse 20 and verse 21, the NIV translates it, the spirit of the living creatures, but it's not their spirit, it's the spirit of life that was in the wheels. And all of a sudden the bigness of this vision is starting to dawn on Ezekiel, this awesome structure. These wheeled creatures flying around all over the place is brought to life only by the spirit of life. There is something beyond the creatures, beyond the wheels even, that is driving the whole thing. 
the creatures and the wheels have no movement in and of themselves, no life in and of themselves. It is the spirit of life that gives it to them. And seeing that there is something far bigger at play than even this awesome picture at the centre of the storm, at last Ezekiel looks up beyond the wheels, beyond the creatures, way up above their heads, above the storm. And what he sees is magnificent. You see it there, verse 22? Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the, the, the expanse were their wings stretched out one toward the other and each had two wings covering its body. And when the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. And when they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse, over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. And above even the expanse, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above, on the throne, was a figure like that of a man. Ezekiel looks up and sees this awesome expanse of of ice, or more literally crystal. And then above that he sees this glorious throne, this amazingly constructed throne. And on the throne is a figure like a man. The same phrase used right at the start of the Bible in Genesis 1 when speaking of our own creation. The same phrase used by the exile John on the island of Patmos when the gates of heaven are open to him and he sees this same vision. And Ezekiel trying to sum up what he is seeing before his very eyes in verse 28 he says, when God gives his exiles a vision of reality this is what he shows them. Right at the heart of it, do you see what he shows? The appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And Ezekiel realising what, or rather who he is gazing upon, falls face down before him. Now I've got to say I have loved uh, spending time in this chapter this week. It's an amazing vision. Now let me encourage you uh, in the coming weeks to take the time to read through Ezekiel for yourselves. To catch a glimpse of what this vision is opening up for us in the following chapters. But just for a few minutes, what I want to do now is I want us to try and see this vision clearly because God is saying something very important to us tonight. And the obvious question is why such a vision? As awesome as it is, as spectacular and complex as it is, why does God show us this? What import could it possibly have for the exiles at the banks of the river or for us here tonight? Well, let me say it's more important than you could possibly imagine. It is, in fact, the key to seeing everything in life clearly. If you hope to live well in this world, you need to have this vision burnt onto your retina to see the three earth-shaking, world-view-changing things that this vision shows us tonight. That's what I want us to think about for a few moments. And the first one we need to see from this vision is that it makes crystal clear to us that the Lord, Yahweh, is still gloriously on his throne. And for the Israelites in exile and for our world in exile, God reveals the most important thing you will ever hear or ever know. He is the Lord and he's on his throne. In fact, it is the sum message of this entire book, all 48 chapters, there it is. Yahweh is declaring himself, I am the Lord. 
and the exiles in Babylon sat by the banks of the Kibar River wrestling with the events of recent times, wrestling with what had happened to them, wondering what on earth had happened to their God, this powerful, mighty to save God. Where was he? Well, Yahweh's response to this, to pull back the clouds that veil heaven and to show the exiles his glory, to declare loud and clear and in living colour that Yahweh is gloriously on his throne. And if you're here tonight and you are not aware of that, then let me say that the Bible says that there is no more important thing than you could see. That there is one throne at the centre of this universe and there is only one occupier on that throne and his name is Yahweh. And if tonight, uh, like most of us, you're sitting here as a Christian, I hope this vision jolts you as it did me this week. Yahweh is on his throne, glorious, high, lifted up. One of the great uh, joys of, of having young children is that they think I'm enormous. They think I'm a giant. Regularly, uh, Jamie says, Daddy is big. And it just fills me with pride. Yeah, I'm quite big. It works well until Finn has got to the stage now where he started comparing his daddy with others in my presence and in the presence of other daddies. And he says, my daddy's better than yours. My daddy's stronger than yours. And then you start to look at the other daddy and you think, But the problem for most of us, even if we're not daddies and we don't have someone whispering in our ear, gee, you're big, is we actually start to believe that we're all there is. We're as big as life gets. We far too easily slip into a view of our world that is just flat. We lose all sense of depth and height in reality. All there is is us and our issues and our situation. Well, behold your God. He is high and lifted up, and on his throne. He is glorious, surrounded by cloud and fire. He is mighty to save. He is the God of armies. He is holy, like one that you use your wings to hide from. The question that I ask myself this week, and I ask you now, is why do we find that so easy to forget? Why do we lose sight of this vision of our God? If you, like me, struggle... But let me encourage you to catch a glimpse of your glorious God tonight in this vision. Think about the difference this vision would make if it was burnt onto our retina to the way we live as Christians. If this was our picture of God, if this was the reality that we saw, think of how different our obedience to God would be, our desire to go his way with our lives. All of a sudden the decisions we make to, to disobey God, to dishonour him in the way... We go about our relationships or or use our time or our wealth or our words become matters of great occasion all of a sudden when you see who God really is. And think about the difference it would make to our prayer lives, the utter confidence in the ability of the one I pray to to actually answer me and then some. Think of the awe I will feel when I realise who I am bowing the knee before. I think how careful I will be to ask that which is for his honour. And think about the difference it will make to the way we go about church, our life together. Even something as, as simple as singing that, you know, you get to a point in a service where you think, oh good, this is the moment where I stretch my legs. All of a sudden we would have a new appreciation of the need to praise a God as glorious as this. Or when we read God's word together, we would be riveted because we know the throne from which those words come. It seems to me that those in the Bible who have seen that glory clearly 
the likes of Moses and Ezekiel here and Paul are so driven by that vision that it fills their horizon. Well, let me encourage you. If, you, if you're in a rut in a Christian life, then look up, high up, way above the storm and see the glory of the living God. That's the first thing you need to see from this vision. The second, the Lord is not only gloriously on his throne, he is completely active and in control in this world. You see, this vision of these creatures powered by the spirit of life was a vision of all creation. Absolutely everything is under his throne and absolutely everything is given life by his spirit. The creatures with, with their faces representing, if you like, the high points of creation, the man, the lion, the ox, the eagle, all parts of creation, even humanity, even us, are under his throne. And the spectacular wheels declare to us that nothing is beyond his reach. He's able to get everywhere. And the eyes, they remind us that God is utterly aware. He sees everything. Is that your vision of God? How do you see him? It's a vision of a God you cannot hide from, isn't it? Well, let me uh, permit me to, to tell you one more uh, story from uh, my, my children. This one uh, is, is Jamie. Jamie is at a point in her life where she just loves the game hide and seek, just obsessed with it. So let me warn you, she, she's not picky about who she plays with, so if you see her, more than likely you'll be playing hide and seek before you know it. But she hasn't quite understood the game yet, the hide bit anyway. And so she said, Dad, let's play hide and seek. So I'm, I'm left to count to ten. I get to ten and I say, coming ready or not? And there's Jamie standing in front of me with her hands over her eyes thinking all of a sudden she's invisible. And I'm meant to sort of move around the room pretending I don't know where she is. And I suspect for many of us that we have that sort of view of God. We, we sort of think we're in the middle of the room and he's not seeing us. He's not aware of what's going on. But just like me and Jamie, he is utterly aware. If you're tempted to, to wonder whether God knows what life is like for you, whether he knows what life is like for the human race, well, here's your answer. God gives life to all. He is served by all. He sees all. He knows all. And the final thing we need to see from this vision, and this is perhaps the most important, not only is the Lord on his throne, not only is he in the world at large, very much in control, he is also right here with us. And for Ezekiel and the exiles, I think this is the biggest shock of all. What is God doing there in Babylon? He was supposed to be back in Jerusalem where all the exiles longed to be. He was supposed to be in his temple. But God had not forgotten his exiles. He is right there with us in the midst of our situation. Emmanuel, God with us. And when we see the truth of that name, when when God is indeed right there beside us, there is always more to be said, isn't there? The story is not over yet. Emmanuel, I suspect, is one of the most evocative names the scripture gives to our Lord. I mean, what a thought. God has come close to us. It's a title that brings great comfort and we remember it each Christmas and we remember the comfort that comes with it. God is right there with us. But let's remember the vision for a moment. 
this huge storm cloud that Ezekiel is staring into as this truth is proclaimed. The huge storm of judgment that accompanies God's presence with us. You see, God with us is not always good news. Not if you're living as the exiles had been, in rebellion against the one on the throne. It is not good news if, if you live as our world lives, in stubbornness going our own way rather than God's, and in idolatry, trusting in anything and anyone but the living God, in unfaithfulness. No, for the rebel, the exile, the news that the king you oppose has come and has come close is not good news at all. A sinner standing before the Lord is not okay. He is completely undone, without a leg to stand on. So let me ask you, how do you think you can survive a storm like this? Where can you run from a deluge of rain like this one? Well, flight is useless, isn't it? Have you, have you seen his wheels? Pretense and, and denial and, and delusion are useless as well. Have you seen his eyes? He knows everything. It's no wonder that Ezekiel falls flat to the ground. The judgment of God in full flight is an awesome and terrible sight. And because it is so terrible, the temptation for the Christian community over the years has been to downplay or to remove sin and judgment from our preaching and from our conversations with each other and even from our conversations with the unbelieving world around us. We do this for fear of offending people or, or, or fear of turning people away. We would much rather set up a warm and accepting vision of our God in which, which everything is fine and, and we're okay. Well, let me ask you, if you saw what Ezekiel saw and you are seeing it tonight, do you think he felt okay? Do you think he thought the sin of the exiles was no big deal? And what struck me very strongly this week as I surveyed this spectacular picture of the glorious Lord and his judgment on his exiles was this. Can you think of anything more cruel, more disingenuous, more evil than knowing this of our Lord, knowing this of our world and saying nothing, or even worse, denying it? The truth is, people in exile, whether we're talking about Israel in 597 B.C., or Sheffield in 2008 AD. They don't need warm, fuzzy, pretend images of God, beautiful lies about God and about our world. Because when the scaffolding of life falls down, when the veneer is pulled up in the, in the big picture of our world, or even in the small scale, when a new year rolls around and, and nothing seems to have changed, I was reading uh, the Sydney Morning Herald uh, website, at uh, around uh, New Year's and these were the first five stories that greeted the New Year for Sydney father murders daughter 61 year old hacked to death man punched and robbed for his mobile phone Israel embassy evacuated and victims grieve over a hit and run our world knows things are far from okay and a Christian community whispering in their ear saying we're okay everything's fine is no use at all. What they need, the same way someone who is desperately ill needs this, what they need is someone to tell the truth, to give them a truthful answer as to why our world is the way it is and whether there is any hope left. Because without the recognition of sin and the curse that, that lies on our world because of our sin, 
without an awareness that we are under God's wrath and he is right there with us then the fallenness of this world makes no sense this vision is meant to leave us with a spiritual sense of shock shock at the unveiling of the Lord's awesome rule and his infinitely weighty glory and the book of Ezekiel makes clear that Yahweh lays absolute claim on planet earth mine he says to everything they will know that I am the Lord that's the big point of this whole book and unless we see and proclaim this vision clearly to our world and to ourselves we're going to miss this and if you miss that you will miss what is at the burning heart of his glory did you see it? as we watched with Ezekiel well just for a moment come back with me to the throne halfway through verse 26 high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man and I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up it, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire and that from there down he also looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him and then comes the part that blew me away this week the part I suspect caused Ezekiel to collapse in amongst this spectacular storm front as the wind rages around is a man seated in the storm on his throne and his appearance verse 28 like a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day a rainbow the storm has passed a rainbow says it has finished the very same clouds that bring judgment give way to the brilliant light of this rainbow God pulls back the gates of heaven and he shows us reality and he tells us the truth about our world in exile and about his terrible judgment and it is out of this picture this darkness that the light of the gospel shines the storm will pass now the problem with rainbows of course is, is they don't really exist I was looking them up uh, this week on Wikipedia to find out a bit about rainbows and really all they are is just light diffracted through uh, water molecules but you can't really go up to the sky where the rainbow is and, and be where it is because it, there's nothing to it just an optical illusion uh, but not this time this vision is a picture of reality this rainbow points to God's amazing grace and it is not saying there's some glib quick fix to God's judgment here it is only after the sin of the whole world is paid in full only after God's judgment which is frequently described in the Old Testament as his cup of wrath only after that cup has been drained to the very last dregs only then will the storm pass and here at last we see the wonder of the gospel do you see who this man is on the throne the one who can calm the storm it is our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ Emmanuel God with us who as he is strung up on a cross is surrounded by the very darkness that we have seen here tonight and as he is strung up on the cross alone drinks the bitter cup of God's judgment down to the very dregs the exiles on the banks of the Kibar River looked at their situation and they summed it up like this at the end of the book our bones are dried up and our hope is gone we are cut off 
Our world and exile lives in the very same situation. Ephesians 2 captures it for us. We are dead in transgression and sin. We are by nature objects of wrath. But when God is with us, there is more to be said. And because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that we have been saved. Who can stand before the glory of the Lord? Who can survive this storm that we have seen tonight? Well, only the one who takes shelter in Jesus. Only the one whose life with all its sin and rebellion and selfishness and idolatry and and shame, all of that is hidden in Christ. Only that person survives. Friends, the news that the Lord is still gloriously on his throne, that he is completely active and in control in the world and that he is right there with us, is either the worst news you will ever hear or the greatest comfort you will ever know. Let me say if it's terrible news for you tonight, let me beg you, come to Jesus. Hide in him. And if you're someone, as most of us tonight are, who have taken refuge in Jesus, your life is hidden in him, then let me encourage you as you head out on another week, with with all that it might involve for you, to raise your eyes up this week. Way up. And behold the glory of the Lord who has forgiven you in Christ. And since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen.